With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Bad blood between father and son. That was what the police called it today. Fans this afternoon who passed the family home where it happened played his music and prayed for the soul from which it came. Well, there's God and, and, and the devil. And uh, the devil just, just won this one this time, but still the force of God's going to win in the end, I think. The dispute, authorities now conclude, began Saturday night, an argument over insurance between the 69-year-old minister and his renowned son. The shouting continued Sunday, and then... The uh, argument turned physical. There was some pushing and shoving, and apparently Marvin Jr. Got the, was getting the better of that, and the mother interceded and separated them. Uh, moments later, the father reappeared. He had a, uh, a handgun with him, and he fired two shots, fatally wounding uh, Marvin Gaye. No drugs, no alcohol were involved. Happy being alive. Love those positive vibes. With a man who don't mind taking a chance. It's Robert Wesley Branch. Be well, be encouraged, be inspired. Every day, hey, hey, yay. Be well, be encouraged, be inspired. Every day, hey, hey. It's the Robert Wesley Branch Show. Mr. Marvin Gay, Brother Marvin, let's talk about our brother. Bad blood between father and son. That's how the police described the events at the Marvin Gaye Senior household on that day in Los Angeles. Bad blood between father and son. Bad blood. Is it possible to have bad blood between father and son? And just what is bad blood? We're going to talk about that. What is bad blood? What does that mean? Marvin Pence, P-E-N-T-Z, Marvin Pence Gay Senior, shot and killed his son. Marvin Pence Gay Jr. on April 1st, 1984. I was 17 in my senior year of high school. Brother Marvin was killed one month before I graduated. I never met the brother. I didn't know him, never saw Marvin in concert, never went to one of his shows. I was introduced to Marvin Gaye because my father bought and played his records in our house. They were in our home. I saw his face on the album covers. I heard his songs. I grew to love his style and appreciate his artistry. And Marvin Gaye Jr. was shot twice, as I said, with a gun that he bought for his father. A lot of us have heard this story before. And his father used that gun to end his son's life. This is what Wikipedia says about that. On Christmas Day, 1983, Marvin gave his father a Smith & Wesson 38 special pistol so that he could protect himself from intruders. Friends and family members contended that the younger Marvin was often suicidal and paranoid and by now was afraid of leaving his room and spoke of little besides suicide and death. He sometimes wore three overcoats and put his shoes on the wrong feet. 
Four days before his death, according to his sister Jean, Gay had tried to kill himself by jumping out of a speeding sports car, suffering only minor bruises. Jean, that's the sister, contended that there was no doubt Marvin wanted to die and that he couldn't take any more. Couldn't take any And that reminds me of what I remember reading about Phyllis Hyman. This is what Wikipedia says about her. Suicide note. I'm tired. I'm tired. Those of you that I love know who you are. May God bless you. I'm tired. Y'all heard that term that the elders say. Many of us have heard it. Y'all heard this? I brought you in this world and I'll take you out. Now, most of us, when we hear that, you know, we hear it and we think, okay, you know, go on, sit down somewhere with that. But we don't actually think, at least I never thought when I've heard that in my family, that anything like that would remotely be possible. There was a, this is a sidebar that just came to my mind. There was a, how should I put it? There was some drama at a family event in my family. I think it was last summer. Uh, Yes, last spring, about a year ago. At a graduation for my cousin and some drama popped off, family drama popped off. And when I heard about it, because I was not there, I was shocked because, you know, stuff like that just doesn't really go down in our family like that. Like we're not those people. You know, when I heard the level of cussing and it was just for lack of a better phrase, pardon your ears. I know some of you are very sensitive when I use these words, but it was some nigga shit. And I was like, when I was hearing about it, I was like, I can't believe this is going down in the family like this. Just some straight drama that just popped off. And, you know, I think about that in the sense that it would be surprising to me if anything like what happened to Marvin Gaye Jr. happened in my family. I would just be shocked because we just don't tend to roll like that. But that saying I brought you into this world and I'll take you out, that appears to have been the case in this particular father-son story, Marvin Gaye Sr. and Marvin Gaye Jr. And it is a very long way, brothers and sisters, from being born in Washington, D.C. in 1939 to being shot twice. His father shot him once, then he moved in Shot him in the chest first, then he moved in and shot him in the shoulder at point blank range. It's a long way from being born in Washington, D.C. in 1939 to being shot twice by your father in a house in Los Angeles in 1984. That, brothers and sisters, is a long and winding road. How does it come to that where your father takes a gun and ends your life? How does it all come to that? We're going to talk about that. Let's talk about the father, Mm. Marvin Gaye Sr., Because this is what Wikipedia says about him. These are some excerpts. Marvin Gaye Sr. was born the first of 15 children. The first of 15 children. 15 children in Kentucky. So let that sink in. That's a lot. 15 children in Kentucky. He had a troubled childhood where his physically abusive father would often beat his mother and five siblings. So that's a note. That's a note to make that he came himself. This is the daddy. We ain't talking about the Marvin that we love. We talking about his daddy. Gay Sr. met his future wife, Alberta Cooper, whom he would marry on July 2nd, 1935. The couple bought a small house in southern Washington. And then it gives their address. And I know exactly where that was near the Anacostia River. Alberta already. Now, listen to this. Alberta already had a son named Michael. But believing he couldn't raise another man's son, Gay Sr., sent Michael to live with his sister-in-law, Pearl. So he marries this woman with a a son. Okay, he marries this woman. He knows she has a son. And he sends the son to live with her sister because he can't raise another man's child. So now uh, let me just remind the viewers that we're talking about conscious fatherhood today. 
Another note, on April 2nd, 1939, their first son, Marvin Jr., was born. And then shortly after that, there were other children born. In 1970, Gay would later father, this is the father now. In 1970, Gay Sr. would later father a son named Antoine Carey with another woman as a result of one of his extramarital affairs. So 40 years after he married this woman, Marvin Gaye's mother, he had an affair and fathered a son with one of the women he was having an affair with. That's the daddy. Alberta Gay later stated that her husband hated Marvin Jr. As she told David Ritz in 1979, David Ritz is the biographer. He wrote Divided Soul, The Life of Marvin Gaye. This is what Marvin Gaye's mother, Marvin Gaye Jr.'s mother, told David Ritz in 1979. My husband never wanted Marvin and he never liked him. He used to say he didn't even think he was really his child. I told him that was nonsense. He knew Marvin was his, but for some reason, he didn't love Marvin. And what's worse, he didn't want me to love Marvin either. Marvin wasn't very old before he understood that. Now, here's what the father told David Ritz in 1979. It was important that I have a male child. A namesake is what I wanted. The day he was born, I felt he was destined for greatness. I thanked God for the blessing of his life. I thanked God for Marvin. I knew he was a special child. It goes on to say here that eventually Mr. Gay Sr. withdrew from social life. He was a very strict Christian man who belonged to a very specific sect of Christianity, S-E-C-T, that was very restrictive in its teachings. And it says here that he eventually withdrew from social life, developing alcoholism and was involved in cross-dressing, which humiliated his son, Marvin Jr., the one we love, humiliated his son, who at the age of 12 spied on his father dressing in his mother's clothes. Let's let that sink in. At 12 years old, Marvin Gaye caught his father, not even caught. He was peeping in on his father dressing in his mother's clothes. Let that sink in. Following Marvin's musical career beginnings, he refused to be in the same room with his father for a number of years. This decision led to Marvin adding an E to his final name, which was done to quiet any rumors of his own sexual orientation, to emulate his idol Sam Cooke, and to add more distance from his father. So the family name is G-A-Y. Marvin added an E. And I can understand why you catch your father in the closet dressing up as your mother and questions as a 12 year old begin to develop for you. Most notably, am I the same way? I think any of us would ask that at that age in our journey. So years later, when he was putting himself forward before the public, he added an E to his name. It also takes me back to something that I read in this book, The Strength of a Woman, The Phyllis Hyman Story by Jason A. Michael. The Strength of a Woman, The Phyllis Hyman Story by Jason A. Michael. On page 230, it says this. To select friends, she was more specific. She spoke of giving herself the gift of death for her birthday, that she was tired of it all, said one such friend who requested anonymity from the New York Daily News reporter he later spoke to. On Thursday, June 29th, Phyllis phoned Danny Poole, whom she'd kept in touch with sporadically in the years following her early 80s romance. Bluntly, she told him she planned to take an overdose of sleeping pills on July 6th, her 46th birthday. So when you think of both of them speaking of being tired, Marvin saying, I just can't take it anymore. You ask yourself, at least I ask myself, and I've been asking myself all week, what is it I think about Prince died of a drug overdose? And they just released this week that Prince had, in their words, an excessively high amount of fentanyl in his system. That drug alone is like a hundred times more powerful than heroin. So to have an excessive amount of that in your system, one has to ask oneself, what am I trying to do here? Does it take that much to comfort my pain or is there something else going on here? 
Phyllis Hyman took overdose of pills, laid down, died before a performance that night. Marvin Gaye uh, sent my co-host during the opening a picture of him on stage in one of his last performances. Damn near butterball naked. All he had on was some like bikini briefs. Stripping down before the people. And when I saw that, to me, I knew what I was looking at. I knew what I was looking at. And I was looking at a man who was doing public penance. P-E-N-A-N-C-E. Public penance. Penance is a harm you do to yourself based upon your belief that you have sinned and done wrong before God. And when I saw that man standing on stage like that with his drawers on, stripping himself bare before the public, humiliating himself. You can even look in the picture if you look it up. His head is hung low. It's shame that you see there. It's not even a braggadocio, machismo. Here it is, ladies. Here it is. It's not even that. It's like you can just see him hanging his head naked damn near before the audience going, it has come to this. And people who are at those shows, even Gladys Knight speaks about this. You can look it up. She says, when I went to see him, one of his shows at that point, I knew we had lost him. I knew we had lost him. Another person said he just couldn't hit any of the notes. It was a shell of the Marvin that people knew. How does it come to that, brothers and sisters? How are you a Whitney Houston with that kind of gift? And we watched over the years as that gift just waned to her standing on stage in Europe, Mm -hmm. struggling with these songs struggling to get anywhere near the notes that she once reached so effortlessly. What is that that drives those of us with that kind of talent or with any talent to want to destroy ourselves along the journey? What is that? We're going to talk about that. What is that? So we're going to talk about the bad blood and we're going to talk about something else that Marvin said too, because Marvin was telling us his his story. There's a reason why I played all those clips, because if you listen very carefully for those who had ears to hear what our brother was talking about in some of those clips, he was telling us a lot of things, a lot of things. He said, I'm a bit of a manic depressive anyway. Most of the time I put on a bit of a face and act, but I'm depressed most of the time. That's what he said. I am probably quite schizophrenic. That's what he said about himself. I'm a lot of people. I'm a lot of things. And I just have to express all of myself. That's what Brother Marvin said about himself. I was a manic depressant at my low ebb. Didn't my Angelou, our late great departed sister, didn't she teach us that people are always telling you and showing you who they are? And didn't she admonish us to believe them when they're telling you? Mm -hmm. Was that brother diagnosed or undiagnosed he certainly diagnosed himself but was he seen by a clinician and diagnosed as someone who suffered from chemical depression chronic chemical depression i don't know the answer to that question and was he ever treated for it which i think is an excellent question and i don't know the answer to that either i suspect not or he might be alive today at 44 years old Right. After all that we know about him, after owing the IRS millions of dollars and exiling himself Mm -hmm. to Ostend, Belgium, O-S-T-E-N-D. It's a city in Belgium. That's where he went. He had a patron there, a man named Freddy Cozart, who befriended him and gave him shelter when he needed a place to go. And he actually got clean. He achieved sobriety over there in Belgium. And Midnight Love, his last album, was released and sexual healing was on that album. And the acclaim of that single hitting the way that it did, becoming a hit, brought him back from Belgium over to the States to tour. And on that tour, or slightly before that tour, he resumed his relationship with cocaine. 
and ended up in what is called cocaine psychosis. That's what it looks like when you heard earlier when I read from Wikipedia that he was wearing two or three overcoats. He was wearing a bulletproof vest that he insisted upon wearing all the way until he got on the stage and then he would take it off because he thought that people were trying to kill him or out to get him. The paranoia that comes with extended drug use. That's what he was experiencing. So after all of that and that tour in 83, he moved into his parents' home in Los Angeles. So that's why he was in that house that day because he had moved back there. Think of all the living our brother had done until that point in his life. And then he moved back into his parents' home, a house, by the way, that he bought them. He bought that house for them in Los Angeles. And he ended up moving back in that house, even though he and his father were on rocky terms. And it even says here, and I do think this is true, when I think about our brother, this does tend to, and all that I've learned about him, this does tend to ring a bell for me as being potentially true. Frankie is his brother. And after the shots were fired that day in Los Angeles, Frankie ran into the house. I'm reading from Wikipedia. Frankie ran to the house and carefully walked into the hallway to his brother's room, not knowing if his father still had the gun, whether his father was still in the room or if his brother was dead. After walking into Marvin's bedroom, an emotional Frankie held him as Marvin lay there, dying and bleeding rapidly. According to Frankie, Marvin, barely speaking above a whisper, told him, I got what I wanted. I couldn't do it myself. So I had him do it. It's good. I ran my race. There's no more left in me. I ran my race. There's no more left in me. How does it come to that? How does it come to that, brothers and sisters? You grow up in a strictly religious household. You're indoctrinated with all those teachings. You love God. Love God. Talk about God all the time in your songs and your artistry. Love God. And how does life get you to a point where you buy a pistol for your father and then create a circumstance where your father would take that pistol because prior to his father killing him, basically Marvin had whooped his ass. Basically he intervened on the mother and father arguing and basically whooped his father's ass. And that's when his father went into the room, got the gun that Marvin had bought him and came back and killed him. We're talking about Marvin Gaye and yet there are pieces of his story that are applicable to many of our lives, particularly when we talk about abuse and addiction and abandonment, sexual abuse, sexual confusion, violence, drugs. If you heap fame and celebrity and money on top of that, it's a toxic cocktail for many of us. It's a toxic cocktail. Something happens to a child coming into this world as a newborn and X amount of years later wanting to kill themselves the way Phyllis Hyman did, overdosing the way Prince did, smoking herself to death the way Whitney Houston did. Something happens. What is that, brothers and sisters? What happens to us? How does life get inside us in that way and bring us to those particular things? Many of us experience downtimes. I certainly have been there. And anybody who listens in this space knows that I have been there. And there are times, yes, when we give up. I've been there too. So it is a grace that we survive and continue. But if you listen carefully to these stories, Marvin had tried to kill himself on multiple occasions. Phyllis Hyman, it says in this book I just read from, had talked about suicide. Her sister said, I can't remember when Phyllis didn't talk about suicide. She had always talked about suicide. So a lot of us know a lot of things about people in our family, and a lot of us aren't saying a damn thing. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. That a lot of us know some things. We are all concerned when the person takes the shotgun and goes into the school and shoots up the kids. Of course, that touches all of us. But what about the day before when the guy was acting crazy and nobody said nothing? What about the year before when the kid was crazy coming to school, doing crazy things and nobody intervened to say something is going on in that house that needs to be looked at? 
You know, uh, Robert, as you're talking, we're talking about the thing of conscious fatherhood. And a lot of times when persons are talking about issues with their father, it's because they didn't know their father. Their father abandoned them when they were a little kid. They didn't meet them. We've heard different stories over the years, even the guests that we've had of late as far as their father wasn't present. But here we have a father who was physically present in the home growing up. But yet, according to the story of Marvin's mother, his father despised him, didn't like him. And as a child, we are all sensitive to our parents as far as we want to be loved, we want to be appreciated. Just from a personal note, you know, we had my father on a couple weeks ago, and my father and I have a wonderful relationship. But one of the things that we also discussed was the fact, until I grew up and got to know and understand, in the beginning, there was a lot of things I didn't understand. And some of it was self-perpetuated as far as I thought my dad didn't like because it seemed like to me he favored my brother and my sisters over me. And wondering why was that until I got a better understanding. Some of it was just insecurity and some of it was a you know realization of trying to figure this out as he grew up because I was the first child. So children pick up a lot of different things and as far as it can cause a lot of harm. What's wrong with me? Why don't my parents love me? Why doesn't my father call me? Why doesn't my father do And he's sitting right across from me. So when we're talking about conscious fatherhood, we're talking about being consciously present, not just physically wise, but providing some emotional stability and love and support so these gates of death and destruction in our own personal lives can be avoided. But when that's absent or the father is creating is the cause of that, it will cause us to go on a potential downward spiral to relieve that pain that we're feeling, whether it's through drugs, through alcohol, through promiscuous sex, or whatever the case may be, trying to fill that longing that we really want our father to fill. Yeah, you talk about his father was present. Marvin Gaye Jr.'s father was present. We made a note earlier when we were talking about his father that his father had a troubled childhood where his physically abusive father would often beat his mother and siblings. So Marvin Gaye Sr. grew up with his father abusing him and beating his mother and brothers and sisters. That was the father's childhood, Mm -hmm. which means Marvin Gaye's grandfather was a batterer and abuser and Marvin Gaye's father was a batterer and abuser. Let me read this quote from Brother Marvin because he talks about that there was a time in his life where his father beat him nearly every day. And by the time he was 12, there wasn't a part of his body that had not been beaten by his father. Listen to this. This is Wikipedia. Gay explained his father's abuse to author David Ritz. Same author, same book, Divided Soul. Gay explained his father's abuse to author David Ritz years later, stating, quote, it wasn't simply that my father beat me, though that was bad enough. By the time I was 12, there wasn't an inch of my body that hadn't been bruised and beaten by him. By the time he was 12, there wasn't an inch of his body that hadn't been bruised or beaten by his father. And what that does, brothers and sisters, it causes trauma. What is trauma? What is trauma? Psychological trauma is a type of damage to the mind that occurs as a result of a severely distressing event. I'm reading from Wikipedia. Trauma is often the result of an overwhelming amount of stress that exceeds one's ability to cope or integrate the emotions involved with that experience. I'm going to read that one more time. Psychological trauma is a type of damage to the mind, the M-I-N-D, 
PTSD that occurs as a result of a severely distressing event. Trauma is often the result of an overwhelming amount of stress that exceeds one's ability to cope or integrate the emotions involved with that experience. Psychological trauma. Now, there's a body of people that comprise the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. You might have heard of this body referred to as DSM, DSM DSM-IV. DSM-4 and there are letters that come after them. There are these different bodies that certify certain things when it comes to your, our mental and physical health. DSM-4, TR, defines trauma as direct personal experience of an event that involves actual or threatened death or serious injury. Threat to one's physical integrity, witnessing an event that involves the above experience, learning about unexpected or violent death, serious harm or threat of death or injury experienced by a family member or close associate. Trauma can be caused by a wide variety of events, but there are a few common aspects. There is frequently a violation of the person's familiar ideas about the world and their human rights, putting the person in a state of extreme confusion and insecurity. Listen very closely, brothers and sisters. Psychologically traumatic experiences often involve physical trauma that threatens one's survival and sense of security. Typical causes and dangers of psychological trauma include harassment. We've certainly heard a lot about that lately. Embarrassment, abandonment, abusive relationships, rejection, codependence, physical assault, sexual abuse, partner battery, employment discrimination. Dante, you know a lot about that in your line of work. Police brutality, judicial corruption and misconduct, bullying, paternalism, domestic violence, indoctrination, being the victim of an alcoholic parent, the threat or the witnessing of violence, particularly in childhood, life-threatening medical conditions, and medication-induced trauma. Last thing I want to say about that, I'm reading from Wikipedia under psychological trauma. Some theories suggest childhood trauma can increase one's risk, R-I-S-K, risk for mental disorders, including post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and substance abuse. Some theories suggest childhood trauma can increase one's risk for mental disorders, including post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and substance abuse. So brothers and sisters, in some way, on some level, all of us have experienced trauma in some way as a result of our childhood and the experiences we encountered in our childhood. There are some cases and some stories, as we all know, where the psychological trauma inflicted was severe, severe, and has affected us for the rest of our lives. Some of us are able to pull out of it, to heal from it, to do the work that gets us over it and through it in a way that we're able to continue functioning and to create meaningful lives for ourselves. And some of us never quite get there. Some of us lose the battle before we win the war. We lose the battle before we win the war. And I think we can certainly see some of that in Marvin Gaye Sr. and Marvin Gaye Jr. Is there bad blood between father and son? Is that possible? That's a question that we ask the top. We're going to get there. I want to go here first, though, to depression. Because it's not often that you hear brothers openly speaking about their own depression. And Marvin Gaye was quite articulate about his own depression. And I appreciate that about that brother. 
that he was able to be self-reflective enough where he spoke about his own depression. That's not something that I often see. There were periods in his earlier musical career when Marvin Gaye being sexy and knowing that that's what women want. Now, Dante and Brenda, you all are too young for this. But back in the day, Teddy Pendergrass, Marvin Gaye (laughs) were sex symbols, much like Tom Jones was the white European brother who was a sex symbol. And over in Europe, women would be throwing their panties up on stage. Look up Tom Jones, y'all young folks. Some of y'all listeners, my mom and my daddy listening, they know exactly who I'm talking about. Some of the folks my age know what I'm talking about. The rest of y'all go look up Tom Jones white curly hair brother oh, it's uh, not unusual it's exactly it's, it's not, not unusual, unusual. Yeah. to be exactly <laughs> exactly but women would be throwing their panties younger days women would be throwing their panties up on stage for tom jones they did the same thing for teddy pendergrass and marvin Gaye. teddy pendergrass would have ladies only concerts where you you know you had to be a woman to go of course uh-huh. if you were a man they would let you in there but he promoted it as ladies only so they were sex symbols so they were time that's great that you mentioned that because when you go to YouTube and you look at his concerts it's nothing about females yes now I get it he promoted them as ladies only concerts that's how he promoted his tours and that's what he wanted stand up there and give those ladies what they wanted so there were times in Marvin's career where he would and you can see this in his performances just go look him up on YouTube he would unbutton his shirt he would tease taking off his shirt but he would never do it Right. All right. He would tease it, but he wouldn't do it. Toward the end, he's standing on stage, butterball naked in some bikini underwear. This just goes to show you the fall, the psychologically traumatic fall that that man did in his mind in those years between 1976 when he was having those women only concerts and 1983 a few months before his death when he was standing up there basically naked in front of people and he said in that interview if you listen carefully that between 75 and 83 those were his worst years those were his worst years so the psychological trauma if left unchecked and left untreated brothers and sisters will take its toll that was 34 years ago when he died so let's take it 10 years before that and say 44 years ago well obviously there was no facebook there was no youtube there was no instagram there was no social media there was no fax there was no email there weren't even computers this was a very different time a very different time and you needed a kingmaker at that time now you don't need a kingmaker you don't need to be spotted in a nightclub and quote unquote discovered you can discover yourself by standing up in your living room pointing your camera towards yourself and just wailing live on facebook people can say oh shit he can sing this was a very different time this was a very different time you needed a kingmaker you needed a barry gordy you needed somebody to find you to send you to finishing school to teach you how to stand to teach you how to dress to teach you how to give interviews to teach you how to be proper and to go out there and teach you how to sing in some cases teach you how to dance to the music you were singing teach you how to be a performer you needed somebody to make you a star that was the business so when you found that person you gave them all of that responsibility and what you focused on was being a student and mastering your craft and doing that singing that's what marvin spoke about i'm just a singer i sing the material i can't get into the business you heard him say that earlier i don't get into the business of it that's that old business model and what that would do to our brothers and sisters is that they would wake up one day yes they were famous in many cases they were even wealthy yes they couldn't go to the store because people would know who they were yes they couldn't walk down the street yes they showed up in limousines yes they lived in big houses what they realized is that they didn't own a damn thing they didn't own a master recording they didn't own a damn thing they were puppets and then also too as an artist 
being a creative soul, you're trying to evolve. So then when you try to evolve, it's conflicting with the machine that has been created to make you that star. So Mm -hmm. now you don't own anything. I'm trying to grow and I'm experiencing new ideas of creativity and enlightenment and it's conflicting with everything. And then with the trauma of getting to that point all mixed in together, you have a perfect storm for self-destruction. Well said. When you're talking about the artistry, with the conscious fatherhood aspect, most fans, they identify with artists because there's something that they can identify with. And most artists print. Phyllis Hyman, Marvin Gaye, Michael Jackson, they had a level of pain and trauma that they Mm -hmm. dealt with, that they were able to bring it out in their music. And most of the time, if you want to know what's going on in their lives, listen to the music of the artist, and you can know what they're dealing with, if they're pain, if they're hurting. But sometimes because of fans, we identify with it, like, oh, yeah, they sing my song. Oh, yeah, they just touches the soul, not realizing they are physically going through what they're singing about, which makes the authenticity of the music and the love for that artist even more so without realizing it may be a cry for help, but because they're fans and they're artists, there's that connection. And one final thing, what Marvin said as far as talking about his depression, I found it fascinating because we're talking about in the 70s, 80s, about a black man saying that I have some type of a mental condition when as a black man, as a sex symbol, for you to say mm-hmm. something like that, that's almost like blasphemy. We're talking about like Billy D. Williams, Teddy Pentagram, right. Shaft. That's almost like career suicide, you know, talking about because the sexuality, the prowess of a man, you're talking about you got depression. So I'm floored and like, wow, in awe of him saying that. So I don't want that to be glossed over either. But I also think that at that time, there wasn't a lot of information on what depression is, you know, was at that time. It's kind of like, oh, you're just sad. All right, well, snap out of it. It wasn't a clinical, like, diagnosis. This is very serious. It was basically, like, just an unawareness of, like, what it really meant to be clinically diagnosed with depression. And the thing with Phyllis Hyman, she was diagnosed as being bipolar, but she didn't want to take the medication because she felt that it would affect her art. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Yeah. My family had little or no influence on me choosing this as a career. They were very supportive, but I never sang in church. I used to sing in school choirs and college choir. And then in 71, I was asked to join the the New Direction, which was a group out of Washington, D.C., headed up by Dick Morgan, a wonderful pianist. I joined the group, and I really liked being on the road. I liked singing professionally. Consciously, Nancy Wilson was the only singer I would play the records, you know, Guess Who I Saw Today and things like that. And for a long time, I would not perform. I didn't get into the business when I was 21 because of Nancy Wilson. I figured if you couldn't sing like her, don't try it. I realize now what it is I have. I'm not sure what it is. I just know there's something that people are buying. So I'm trying to work in every facet of the industry that I can. And of course, up to now, I've done jingles, which are singing commercials for television and radio and I do concerts like I was in Dallas and Houston with the Whispers. I do nightclubs like here in Austin. I do the talk shows like Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas. I do specials like the Martin Luther King special that I did on the 8th shot at the Kennedy Center in Washington and aired on his birthday the 15th. Then I did the special for UB Blake, his 100th year celebration. I do it all. Anything that helps pay the rent that is musically 
respectful, musically wonderful, I would get in there and do it. I live with a wonderful brother, good brother, who's an optician. He's a sweetheart, and I'd be home cooking and cleaning the house for him. But I can't participate in my portion of revenue sharing if I were to do that, you know. And in order for people to live and survive today, both people have to work. It's not easy out here, so he's real supportive, more than most men have ever been toward me. I have written some material, but I've never produced anything on myself other than in the studio in, in demo form, which is kind of the product that you put together before. Pre-production is what you put together before you do the actual record. I've produced and on, the, on that level. I enjoy what most girls like to do. Pretty clothes, makeup. I love children. I love my old man. I take good care of him. I love men. I love my female friends. I, you know, I just like to hang to do what normal people do. This is my job, this is a gig. I come to work at a certain time, I do my gig, I leave. It is more intricate and more personally involved. It makes your mind do strange things on you because you have people idolizing you and you're always being attended to and people are always pushing you, they want things from you. I would advise women to give it very careful thought because of, because of the way society is, because of the way we're raised, because of our mental interpretation of what's going on, I would tell chicks as a rule, don't hang. It's not happening. It's really, I love it, I love people, but the business really isn't worth it for a woman's, oh God, unless a woman is a real strong, almost, arrogant and detached from all emotional involvement, it's very difficult. If there's a girl out there that's got a great voice and has very little emotional involvement with people and stuff, I say right on to it because she will be successful. Those of us who are very emotionally attached, like myself, who's a cancer with Sag, Sagittarius, moon and rising, it's not easy for me. And girls today really must dictate their own lifestyles. We can't let our husbands do it, our boyfriends. Even our fathers want to reach a certain age. We learn from our parents. We learn from the male influencers. Bottom line is you must make your own decisions and create your own space. And I've done that over the years. And it's worked pretty good. It's hard. It's very hard because you're very lonely. Women are very much alone. That's the one we're playing today, You Know How to Love Me. Welcome back. Okay, so today we are enjoying the music of Phyllis Hyman. As many of you know, on the afternoon of June 30th, 1995, Phyllis Hyman took her own life. She committed suicide by overdosing on pentobarbital and secobarbital in her New York apartment. Her suicide note read in part, I'm tired. I'm tired. Those of you that know who, those of you that know that, that I love you, you know who you are, and may God bless you. She was 45 years old, and Phyllis Hyman, this is not breaking news, uh, had a drug problem. And we all know that addiction comes in many, many forms, not just drugs and alcohol. Some people are addicted to sugar, others are addicted to money, some people work too much. Other people gamble too much. Some people can't stop smoking. 
Some people can't stop lying. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. And what we want to talk about now is what draws us into addiction and what we do once we find ourselves caught in its trap. So, Glenn, you've been very open in the past about your journey with addiction. Can you tell us at what point in your life you knew that you had a problem and give us a sense of what was going on in your life at that time? Well, things were falling apart. You know what, and I'm kind of emotional here when I listen to you uh, talk about Phyllis Hyman and um, the part where she said that she was tired. Uh, there's an emptiness that, that a uh, place that you get to, you know, you know, drinking and drugging st- started off for me as like a social thing. You know, I did it to try to fit in, you know, with the cool kids. And so it started off with weed, you know, um, the harmless drug. And then, um, next thing you know, I was, um, doing cocaine and drinking an abundance of alcohol. And, um, and while I was in the circle of these people that, um, they were emotionally sick too, you know, and I was right up in there with them. And so um, when things really just started de- deteriorating is that, you know, I started neglecting my bills. I started uh, missing work. Um, and I started isolating a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. And um, I actually tried to commit suicide, you know, uh, a couple of months prior to me leaving my last employer because I had just gotten sick of the depression because, see, you know, the addiction is a progressive illness. And it's progressive, and in that it's progressive, it is an illness and a lot of people don't understand. Getting clean is just getting clean. The real work starts after you get clean. I want us to just walk it through, and I want to engage in this conversation with you, because I remember in my own life, age 14 was the first time that I ever smoked a joint at age 14. And so I want to, I'm thinking about why I did that, um, because you did say that the disease is progressive. Like, why I did that? Why I opened that door? What was going on in my life at that time? And how that progressed to drinking with my boys on the corner, which progressed to just being a social weed smoker at, you know, um, in my early stages of my life. And I'm thinking to what was actually happening in my life at that time. So can you give us... We're talking about drugs and alcohol. For me, at that point in my life, at 14, 15, I was not the most popular kid in school. My sister was the most popular girl in school. So I always had people at my house, but it, what, they weren't there for me. She was an athlete. She was the one that got all the awards. She, she always, to this day, travels in a large entourage of people because she's very popular. That was never me. I knew I was smart, but I was never the cool kid or the one that everybody wanted to hang around. Older, because so, I didn't start doing drugs until about 18. That's when I smoked weed. Mm-hmm. You know, when I finally gave in, because it had been around me in the family, I'd smell this stuff, you know, going to the house with, with relatives. Mm-hmm. And then on the back of the bus, the school bus at school, mm-hmm. people, yeah, I live in the hood, and these oh, people we were smoking the weed back in the day wow. on the back of the bus. <laughs> oh, you yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, in the hood. Oh, yeah. And um, so, uh, you know, o- over a period of time, you know, I succumbed. You know, I, I-, I remember when I hit my first joint. I hit my first joint. I remember that, you know. And, you know, uh, we also made me very paranoid, you know. Right. So I was already self-conscious about a lot of things. So all it did was just magnify everything. 
when you open up that door, whenever you have esteem issues, um, low self-esteem issues, and you open up that door, it's open. And you go on in your life and you begin to find ways to medicate, to anesthetize against some of the feelings that you're having and the things that you're going that are going on in your life. And you're right, it does get progressive. And you told us about how that time when you realized that this was sort of out of control for you. What was the first step once you realized that this is a problem for me? What did you do then? You know what? It, it, when you asked that question, I felt like this tingling come over me and tears welling up in my eyes because I remember. Mm-hmm. I remember that I was so broken. You know, mm-hmm. I, everything was falling apart at work. Um, I must have been like in my, when I really started um, uh, tackling it, mm-hmm. my first rehab visit was probably about five or six years ago. Okay. You know, I, I, I remember I hadn't bathed in like, days and and I actually called the doctor as opposed to killing myself you know I went to the doctor and I sat there on that table and I didn't want him to look at me I didn't want him to touch me because I smelled and mm-hmm. and um, I, I was just broken you know and and that must have been when it hit because I had been dealing with this for years mm-hmm. you know but when it hit was like in my four my early 40s I'm 46 now mm-hmm. so about 40 years old is when it really started hitting you know, and so when I sat there with that doctor and I, and I told them exactly, you know, what was going on, you know, they instantly got me into uh, a very uh, intense rehab program. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where I began the, the, the education uh, about the disease of addiction because, like you said, you know, you're opening Pandora's box and a yes. lot of the times you don't even help. Yes. Yeah. And once that box is yeah, open, unless you live consciously, um, it's gonna stay open, and unless you unless you consciously try to close that door, um, it will grow. We're talking about drugs and alcohol, and I've, I've noticed how the room has gone quiet, and that's okay <laughs> because I, I, because I, I want to have this conversation with you, just the way that we're having it. Um, and I think it's important for people listening because there are a lot of people listening who socially do drugs, who socially drink. I have certainly been one of those people in my life. I think there there does come a time when I did connect the dots that, Robert, you do not love yourself. In fact, you're trying to kill yourself because if you loved yourself, you would not do this. If you loved yourself, you would not overdrink. You would not drug. You would not treat yourself as poorly as you do. Yeah. You know, so, what I'm because a, a lot of times in. I can tell you in my life, people think I have it all together. People think I'm so positive because I've had great jobs and I'm pretty smart and all that package, which is all true, <laughs> is true. But, <laughs> but, but the other side of that, the other side of that, and drugs do tend to do this to you, there's a dark side. There's a side that, that I isolate. There's a side that I keep away from everybody else. Um, because you have to evolve in your own process as a man, as a human being, about, as a spiritual entity, where you fit into the world. And a lot of people walk around saying that they love themselves. But when you really love yourself, you don't do things that will kill you. You don't do things that will tear down your spirit. You don't do things that are contrary to the love that you say that you have for yourself. And so for me, I did make a connection. I never went to a rehab or anything like that. But I did have to get with myself and say, Robert, 
I had to I had to realize that I I like myself. And this happened for me at 30, 33. I'm 43 now, so this is about 10 years ago. When I looked in the mirror, and it was probably the first time in my life where I really said, I really like you. Like, you're a cool guy, you know? And I had never felt that way about myself before. I heard it from other people, but I had to own it for myself. And that did begin to change a lot of my self-destructive behavior. What I'm trying to do in this conversation is an understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, so push me around here. But if there's something in your life that you do that you cannot stop doing, that is an addiction. And we all have that. Absolutely. I think it's, e it's easier to look out and say, my friend is struggling with this, and my sister has that. But I'm talking about every single one of us has something that we continue to do that is not healthy for us. It might not be drugs and alcohol. It might not be sugar. But if you can't stop doing it, I'm trying to get us to look inward and not out hold at on, other hold people. On, hold on, because, okay, so because we're all there. Now we're at a point of common understanding, okay? So we acknowledge that these things exist and that they're problematic. Is it that we don't love ourselves enough? Why do we continue to do something that we know is killing us? What is that? What does that say about me? That, that I continue well, to I think for me, I think I don't think it, it's escapism, and that's the reason I, I, I reluctantly put them all together because, you know, as someone who feels the need to drink 17, 18 beers or five or six or seven beers after work every night, I don't see that the same as, you know, Maisha loving salt and, you know, putting salt all over her food or having, you know, four four scoops of okay, sugar in her coffee. I, okay, I got you. I, I got that. I, I, I understand that there are different levels. I want to move beyond that to the why of it. Why as human beings? I just want to talk about human nature. Maisha just said she's I aware. think we're, we have lazy minds. We don't take control of our minds. We have the ability to conquer anything. Yes, that's me, I Maisha. believe that we're born with the ability yes. to take control of our yes. lives through our thinking. Yes, and if we, exactly if we right. allow our brains to be lazy and that's we don't right. stop to say, okay, I don't need that drink. I'm not that's doing right. that. That's I don't right. need that sugar. I don't need to screw this man tonight. That's right. You have, you're responsible for yourself. Nobody right. else can do that for you. And we tend to not address that aspect of, of what our own power. Yeah, see, we have the power Amen. to do That's that. I believe that I have the power to stop doing all of this. There's I a difference between somebody that. who has the disease of addiction. Their outcomes are different. I, I understand that. But, exactly. but the, the point of self-mastery that Maisha brought up is where I wanted to get us to go, to a place we only use 17% of our brain power. There's a whole lot available right. to us that we don't access. And you can That's master true. yourself. You can master your behavior. You can master your thoughts you can create from your mind Anything. and your words and your actions exactly what you want in life so if I, if I and this is the burden for me because I've had that awareness for years I mean I've been conscious for years but continued to do things that would kill myself most of us wait until the doctor says your liver is bad your heart is bad you got cancer you're gonna die and then we stop drinking and stop doing drugs on a dime but you can do, do well not Robert mastery the of the mind is a whole topic unto itself it is but I'm to my heart you know I've been writing out uh, a lot about it on my blog ever since she told me asked me to be on the show and, and that's a form of therapy and like I think it was Maisha uh, or Michelle said that um, it has a lot to do with um, investing in your mind and, and, and trying to retrain it 
um, because on this thing that I saw on television, especially dealing with cocaine, and they did the little lab rats and all of this stuff, but what they said is that a lot of the times, a person that is on cocaine mm -hmm. will, the mind is controlling everything. Not the person it, it, itself, not the soul, but the mind is so predispositioned to, to getting that cope or getting that hit that before the person knows it, they've done it already. Mm -hmm. You know, so it has a lot to do with working out your issues in your mind and retraining it. And you're right. Yeah. You know, we only use about 17% of our brain. You know, I've heard that. Right. Before, my people. And I think what you said, Robert, and, you know, is we have to look in the mirror every day and look and say, you know what, I'm a good person. Yes. There is some, there is good in me, and that is the that is the hardest thing to do. And to tie it back to the Phyllis Hyman, when you know you speak of her saying she's tired, mm -hmm. it is hard to look in that mirror and say I am a good person, and then hit that road in life mm -hmm. and not come back, not feel you know feeling good. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. Every morning, even if it takes every fifteen minutes, you got to look in that mirror and say. I am a good person. I am good. And yes, you know, and you have to learn that the power of your words, your words are very powerful. That's and if right, you right. affirm good words, mm -hmm. then that's what you're, I believe in the law of attraction. So I try to say good, I, I, I try to say good and do good and think good. And I find that when I do that, good comes to me. If yeah. I say I'm tired, I, I'm sick, mm -hmm. those words are venomous. And yeah, when I say are. those words, then I find that things don't happen. That good things don't happen so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that we need to realize the power of our words, the power of our thoughts. And I just have tons of books and and CDs on that. That's that's something that I'm working on. And the Michelle, power of my words and, and me, thoughts. You and me both, Maisha. Michelle, you're right. It is hard to look in that mirror and say, "I love myself." And some days will beat you up more than other, other days, days will, will, but, but I, I think you get to a point where when Phyllis said she was tired, you get to a point in life where you're tired of doing things that you hate yourself after you do them. That's what I got tired of. I got tired of oh, yeah. where Me I would too. hate myself after I did it. That <laughs> is not a life that I want to live, and that's what made me change. Right. So let's unpack a little bit of what you both spoke on. Let's start here. Bipolar disorder. Brother Marvin mentioned his periods of depression. And he also specifically, and I, I take your point, Dante, about his level of awareness and his candid revelation of where he was psychologically in 1983. I think that's mm -hmm. amazing that he spoke on it. Bipolar disorder. Yes, yes. And I'm reading from Wikipedia. Bipolar disorder, previously known as manic depression, is a mental disorder. That causes periods of depression and periods of abnormally elevated mood, M-O-O-D. The altered mood is significant and is known as mania or hypomania, H-Y-P-O mania, hypomania, depending upon its severity or whether symptoms of psychosis are present. We'll talk about psychosis in a minute. During mania, an individual behaves or feels abnormally energetic, happy, or irritable. Individuals often make poorly thought out decisions with little regard to the consequences. The need for sleep 
is usually reduced during manic phases. During periods of depression, there may be crying, a negative outlook on life, and poor eye contact with others. The risk of suicide among those with the illness is high at greater than 6% over 20 years, while self-harm occurs in 30 to 40%. Other mental health issues, such as anxiety disorders and substance use disorder, are commonly associated with bipolar disorder. We can certainly see some of that. Now, to Dante's point about a lot of the artists singing what they feel at that time and what we're looking at in their artistry as a reflection of what's going on in their souls. I think that's absolutely accurate. I also think it's important to discuss for our brothers and sisters who are interested in this, how music was produced at that time, specifically in the Motown context. Again, this was before the technology that we have now where you can sit at home, program some drum tracks, put on your microphone and go to town. Record that and post it almost instantaneously. At that time, music was produced at Motown like a factory. And that little house in Detroit that we see the picture Motown, that was a factory. That was a machine. There were people who just did the drums. There were people who just wrote the music. There were people like Marvin who just sang the music. There were people who played the instruments. And so the song creation process was that it would go down the line and through the process. And you did your part and then that's what you did. You moved on. So when you were handed some material to sing, whether you liked it or not, or loved the song or not, or thought it was the stupidest thing you ever heard of or not, you got in there and started doo-wopping with it. You did it because that was your part. And here's what. If you didn't do it, there were 13 kids outside on the corner waiting to doo-wop in your place if you didn't want to do it. And you knew that. <laughs> when Marvin went to, and April 4th is when Martin was assassinated. So it's that time of year where all these brothers are popping up. Okay. And in, in my head and in our spirits. When Marvin went to Motown, I think this was a kid who grew up singing. He People knew he could sing from the time he was a young boy. He sung in church. That's what he did. That was his gift and everybody knew it. By the time he got to Motown, he had, he had been performing performing with Harvey and the Moonglows and some other groups. So he had developed a musical style and musical taste. And by the time he got to Motown in Marvin's mind and heart and soul, he was looking to become the black Frank Sinatra. And some of the music that I played earlier between those interviews reflects that it reflects where he was musically. And Barry wasn't necessarily Barry Gordy wasn't necessarily feeling that, but he did make some albums with Marvin singing those jazz standards and stuff. And we didn't buy him. So that's a rejection to somebody who's already psychologically traumatized by the life that he had lived up until mm -hmm. that point. That's a rejection. His soul, mm -hmm. who he really was musically, was rejected by the public. And after several attempts at that, he finally said, all right, I'm going to sing this other stuff. So he wrote a song called Stubborn Kind of Fella. And it was more in the doo-woppy bubblegum pop space that Barry Gordy was perfecting through Motown. And it hit. People liked it. And so there he was out there singing these songs years later that he really didn't care about, really didn't like, really wasn't his soul. But he did them, as Brenda G said, because the machine and because of the money and because it did keep him in the game. And that's a life lesson, brothers and sisters. Sometimes you got to stay in the game just so you can make change. If he had said, hell no, I won't go. We may have never heard of Marvin Gaye. He might have done those fir first few early albums and we and gone into obscurity somewhere. And there are plenty of those stories out there where people stuck to their right. principles, whatever they were, and we never heard from them again. That's not to say they didn't have a wonderful, beautiful life on their terms. It's just that we don't know about it because they never became famous. So Marvin Gaye chose, and he said it in those clips, if that's what they want me to do at this point in my career, I'll just do it. And he did it. 
and he became sexy soul singer that we know as Marvin Gaye. And I didn't know the brother, but I'm telling you, I believe this. And I believe that's why David Ritz's book is called Divided Soul, because I think that was one of Marvin Gaye's divides, that he was never, ever really to be the musical self that he originally wanted to be in this business. He did what we all do in life. We make compromises to keep going and he made compromises to keep going. We all do it in our own sphere of influence on the stage. That is our own life and our own way. We all make compromises to keep going. For example, there are many people we've talked about this many times over the years who are going to get up Monday morning and go to a job that they absolutely can't stand, but they do it to keep going. They compromise to keep going and to pay the bills that they've created to keep going. So you end up in a life that you don't love, in work that you don't love, to keep going. And that thought process would reinforce the idea that he didn't arrive, if you will. Exactly. Because he didn't arrive, quote, in his own terms. Exactly. I've arrived, as far as what you may say, but when someone says they have arrived, in my mind, your emotional, physical, and mental conjecture have met at the same place. So, but when you feel like your status has arrived, but you're emotionally empty, then you won't feel that you have arrived. Exactly. What I appreciate and respect about him, and there are some life lessons in here too, and he said it. The interviewer asked him, he mentioned Norman Whitfield, who we've talked about Norman Whitfield on this program before. Norman Whitfield was a musician, a songwriter, who wrote some of the songs that we all love that we don't know because many times we don't think of the songwriter. <laughs> we think of the vocalist. Right. Okay. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yep. But, but, but Norman was the guy in Motown who was writing these songs, and Norman would give one to Marvin and say, Marvin, let's go in tonight and you cut this and see what it sounds like and he'd have that in in the can as they say then two days later he might say hey Gladys as in Gladys Knight hey Gladys check out this song I wrote same song he gave Marvin go on in there and cut this and see what it sounds like Norman and Barry deciding which of these versions we gonna put out but they would cut their songs on different artists right. and that's when you heard Marvin say that don't bother me at all I'm the OJ Simpson of the music business I do whatever it takes I'm so listen to what he said now in my mind I'm heads and shoulders above all of them so they can all cut my songs if they want I know what I have I'm not insecure about the gift that God, okay? I love it. I know what I have. So I'm not insecure about the gift that God gave me. God gave it to me and nobody can take it from me. That's what Brother Marvin said. So I like that about his personality because he was grounded in the gifts that God gave him. And he wasn't insecure about them gifts. That boy knew that when he got up to sing, he could do that. His confidence came from that. He could do that. The other point I would make about that, if you listen very carefully, and this is critical, Marvin gained the consciousness that I can produce myself. I don't have to put my talent through the Motown machine to do what it needs to do. Here, my Mm. dear, that album you and I were talking about, Brenda, that we love so much that he made in 1978. Here, Marvin produced Here, My Dear. Marvin began to produce himself. Some artists never even get to that point. Their whole careers are in the machine. Right. They're given the material, they're given the song, they sing it, they go out and tour it, that's it. A lot of them are producing themselves. So when you move to be able to produce yourself, that's a game changer. And as you heard Marvin say, it made me independent from a lot of those other people there. Smokey Robinson was able to produce himself in many ways. Not everybody has that skill. There are some singers who just need to sing. That's what they do, they sing. They can't necessarily produce themselves. That's a skill. Producing is a skill. And he had that. So that allowed him to be, I even heard Barry Gordy say once, that he never quite learned the art of giving feedback and criticism to Marvin Gaye. 
Because somebody who can produce themselves, you can't just go in and see somebody who don't know. You can go in there and say, you sound better in this key. You need to sing this song this way. It's arranged for you this way. Do it that way. But somebody who can produce themselves, that's different. And go with me, brothers and sisters. This is a musical conversation we're having now. Anybody who plays the piano and who can accompany themselves is producing themselves. Think about that. Right. When people ask me, well, who do you like more, Patti LaBelle right. or Aretha Franklin? They can't be compared because Aretha, Aretha. Aretha accompanies herself. <laughs> she can sit at that piano and play and sing herself. She's producing herself. She don't need nobody for nothing. That's a different class right. of artist than a fabulous vocalist, which Patti LaBelle definitely is. She is, yeah. She right. is, but cannot be compared to an Aretha Franklin who can sit the down and, right. and play yeah. and sing behind her own playing. That creates its own ecosystem. And a lot of people can't fuck with that. I'm just saying. And a lot of people don't mess right. with that, folks. Don't even do that. And Marvin Gaye was one of those brothers who sat down and played and sang. So Marvin was a brother. My point is that Marvin was a brother who could produce himself. At some point, that became bigger than Motown and bigger than Barry Gordy. And everybody knew that. And Marvin knew it. The other thing, and this is the part that I would really like to share with the listeners today, with our brothers and sisters. This is the real essence of why I wanted to talk about Brother Marvin today. Because it made me think about our talents. We are each given talents, gifts from the creator, talents. And what I'm here to tell you, when I hit the equal sign, I've been thinking about this all week. I've been adding, I've been subtracting, I've been dividing, I've just been channeling. As you know, Brenda G, I've been having some back channel conversation with you all week long. I've just been playing this man's music mm -hmm. and digging in his life and trying to channel his spirit and say, what was it? Talk to me, brother. Talk to me. Tell me something. Teach me. What do you need for me to know about the journey that you went through down here on this earth? And when I hit the equal sign, this is what I'm left with that I want to share with you. Your character governs your talent. Your character governs your talent. It is your character that determines whether your talents are a blessing to you and to others. And it is your character that determines whether your talents are a curse to you and to others. Your character governs your talent. Just like spirit governs matter, your character governs your talent. That is really important. So you can have talent. We all have them. But it is who you are in your character that decides where that talent goes. Case in point. And this is a person mm -hmm. that I point to over and over again in the music business who I feel and I don't know her. I've never met her. But looking at her life and looking at her vast career and her level of talent and her level of success and the fact that you never hear any drama about this woman's life. Nancy Wilson, who has been in the game as long as any of them. And you never hear any drama about Nancy Wilson. And when you see her today, she looks just as beautiful and poised and can give oh you her God. talent the same way that she did 30 years ago. That's your character preserving your gift. I remember Dante said one time on here, this was right after the Oscar performance of Shirley Bassey. And she sang Goldfinger and held that last note forever at 72 forever and Dante I remember okay. you saying when we talked about it on the Saturday after that I remember you saying that's how you preserve your gift and you're exactly right that's how you preserve your gift some of us can do it Nancy Wilson is doing it and there are others of us who can't seem to get over that hump and we've talked about those brothers and sisters it's your character it's your character it's you deciding what your character is going to be what values you're going to have 
and living those out and perfecting and mastering your own character. Character is the downfall of many of our brothers and sisters. Ask Marion Barry. Some of y'all might not even know who he was, <laughs> but he was the mayor of Washington, D.C. and got caught up in a crack sting, smoking crack out of a pipe in a hotel in Washington, D.C. with cameras in the hotel room. It was a big setup. That's your character, brothers and sisters, that allows you to be in that room doing that when you're the mayor of the city. And character is the downfall of many of us. We're not taught the way we should be and the way we can be and the way we need to be about what it is to have good character. We're taught about virtues. We're taught not to lie and all of that. And we're taught what the virtues are. We're taught in church, the fruit of the spirit, patience, meekness, kindness, all those fruit. We are taught what they are. We're not taught how to develop and shape and maintain good character and what that does for you in your life. The doors that it opens for you, the doors that it keeps open for you. Your talent will open doors for you, regardless of what your character is. Go with me here. Walk with me. Your talent will open doors for you because talent is a worldly function. It's divinely given. Yes, your gifts are divinely given, but you are a free will entity, which means that you decide what you do with everything you have. That ain't got nothing to do with the creator. That's you. That's you, brothers and sisters. That's you occupying this body. That's you making choices and choices moment to moment. I'm going to do this. I won't do this. I'll do this. I won't do that. I'll be this. I won't be that. That's you. And those choices develop character. Be it character we want to emulate or character that we don't want nothing to do with. Character. And your character governs your talent. That's who's in charge of your talent and what becomes of it. Your character. Let's go back. I mean, I have always sung. From three years old, it was quite obvious that I was a singer. I never decided and had these um, questions in my mind about whether I was going to be, one day I'm going to be a singer. I knew that I was a singer. I was blessed. I have a gift that was obvious. I started in television when I was 15 years old. I had a TV show. I sang with Sir Raleigh Randolph and his Sultans of Swing. I um, went to college on a scholarship. Mm-hmm. But I've always known that I was a singer. The question was, do you want to be in show business? And that was not necessarily a yes. I said no. I knew, I mean, I could all, I've always been able to separate singing from show business. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a question of whether you're going to sing or not. I can sing anywhere. I can sing in my house. I can sing at church. I can sing anywhere. But I don't have to be involved in the recording industry. I don't have to play nightclubs. I might, ne- you know, I might not want to necessarily be on television anymore. So the show business was entirely different. The singing will never go away. I mean, that's a part of me, but show business is not. I was very honest about show business. I, as a young woman um, at 15, 16, 17, having had a television show, having worked with Rusty Bryant's band, having traveled here in Detroit, it, I really still never signed a contract with anyone for a record contract. I did not. I was not ready to do that. I wasn't ready to make that commitment mm-hmm. because I knew then that that would really be of some consequence. Was I, was I mature enough to handle that? Did I want it? The important thing was if I did it, it had to be where I could have a life. I also realized at a, as a young woman that there weren't many women in the show business who did have what I thought was a life that I would want to emulate. Uh, I saw a lot of death, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, marriages, a mm-hmm. lot of divorce, mm-hmm. a lot of... I didn't see anybody really happy. I saw Lena Horne, I saw mm-hmm. the, the picture, that mm-hmm. great looking package, but then I saw Dorothy Dandridge having a difficult mm-hmm. time of it. Mm-hmm. I knew that 
I sounded like, you know, people ask me, well, who did you sound like? What did you want to do? I knew that I had um, a phrase like Little Jimmy Scott. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I loved the lyric. I also didn't, hadn't really met a lot of females. I mean, I didn't, in Ohio, I did not run into, nor was I friends with Sarah, Ella, sure. or, or Dinah. So I was a young girl who was not easily impressed. I really had a great mom and dad and mother and grandparents, and I was happy. I, I just felt that there's something out here that will hurt you mm-hmm. <laughs> in show business, mm-hmm. and I didn't know that at 17, 18, that I was prepared to handle it well. Uh, it was very important to me to be a wife and a mother, to uh, be my parents' daughter. Uh, I wanted. I felt that if once I did decide this, if I could go home and people were comfortable with me, and I was comfortable being there, then I was successful. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about how many other people in, around the country knew who I was. It was really, are you? Can you? Can you? At this point, you'd be. Can you be chilled out? Can you? really be you. Mm-hmm. And it was, I liked mm-hmm. me, and I did not want to change for the show business. And that was a big question. You know, how do I do this and remain this person that I like? Yes. They're not really aware of the fact, I don't mm-hmm. think, how, how show business can take you out of your, out of your feelings. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very important to me that I remain me. And it's a struggle. I mean, it's not as though it's a given. But there were a lot of times that I had to say no. A lot of times that I had to say, I don't really want to work this hard. I want to be my children's mother. I did not work full force uh, for years. I took dates that made sense, uh, but I wanted to be home with my children and my family. Mm -hmm. So rather than to stay on the road uh, for months at a time, I've never done that. That to me was not life. I remember in the early 60s looking, and I had a young boy, my baby, and I knew where I was going to be for two years in advance. Mm-hmm. I also saw like four weeks off in a year's period of time. That's not life. That's not living. So I rebelled, and I said, I don't want this. This is not what I set out to do. It's really about I am, and I am wonderful, and I know that there's this supreme power that gives me the ability to be any and everything if I just allow it to happen. It's, it's about not going against the grain. It's about not batting your head against a wall that will not come down. It's about saying, open this wall for me, please. Don't look for love from nobody. Find yourself to love. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.